The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, November 20th. I'm Marco Werman. As Israel and Hamas edge closer to a ceasefire, this reporter in Cairo says it's hard to imagine a winner. A pointless week of pointless violence that is likely to bring us not so far from the status quo. And in Gaza, this law student just wants the violence to end. We want to go back to our normal life, away from fear, away from tears, away from death, away from from all those horrible things. And later, the Church of England says no to women bishops. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It was another brutal day in the conflict between Israel and Palestinian militants in Gaza. The militants continued to fire their rockets. Two Israelis were killed. At the same time, the Israeli military continued to bombard targets in Gaza. Officials there say more than 20 Palestinians were killed by the strikes today. But after seven days of brutal violence, the worst may be over. There are reports Israel and Hamas are close to agreeing on a ceasefire. David Kirkpatrick is with The New York Times. He's a bureau chief in Cairo, where the ceasefire talks have been taking place. Uh, David, what exactly is expected to be in the ceasefire agreement? What people are talking about on both sides is a kind of a staged uh, ceasefire, where tonight uh, the shooting stops on both sides. There's a 48-hour or so cooling-off period during which further negotiations are are supposed to take place to establish a a, a longer-term truce. Uh, And that would give the Israelis a kind of deposit on the promise of no more missiles coming out of Gaza, which they need. Uh, And it would give Hamas uh, an opportunity to say to their people, a chance to say to their people, you know, look, we're making progress towards our one demand, which is an end to the embargo and the siege and real autonomy. Whatever got us to this seeming agreement, uh, I'm just wondering, was there a winner here? Did either side make gains uh, when you look at it on balance? Uh, Nope. No, siree. A pointless week of pointless violence that is likely to bring us not so far from the status quo. However, that said, the the winner is President Morsi of Egypt. Uh, uh, In his role as a mediator, uh, he has really advanced onto the public stage in a new way. You know, as uh, Mohamed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood was coming to power for the first time in Egypt, the first time in a democratic uh, Egypt, a lot of people wondered, what is really going to happen when push comes to shove between the Palestinians uh, and the Israelis, between Hamas, you know, which is uh, the Palestinian chapter of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and the Israelis? Would they would they turn away from the peace treaty? Would they inflame the situation? Uh, or would they choose a path of pragmatism? And what we've seen is pragmatism. Their actions, the actions of the Morsi government, have been uh, really to push both sides, including Hamas, 
uh, to end the bloodshed as soon as possible. Uh, and I think that is going to win them a lot of credit with the West. Uh, and I believe some people in the United States government are even hoping this could be the beginning of a relationship where a Muslim Brotherhood-led Egypt leads Hamas uh, down a more pragmatic path as well. If there is a ceasefire uh, today, and, and we are now just waiting to see how well it's adhered to, um, do you think there was some kind of breakthrough moment in the past 24 hours where uh, people were ready to get to this point, or were both sides just worn down to the bone? You know, it's funny. Uh Today, we've seen a lot more violence. We've seen a real spike in the violence, and it's felt like both sides are trying to get their last decisive blows in uh, before the truce comes into effect. Uh, obviously, Israel much more effectively killing many more Palestinians than the Palestinians are able to kill uh, among the Israelis. But it doesn't make you feel like this is a really heartfelt truce. Uh, it's not like these people are about to kiss and make up. Uh, in fact, it makes you wonder how it's going to last. Foremost among those questions um, is, can Hamas deliver on a ceasefire? You know, Hamas is not the only uh, militant group operating in Gaza. I mean, they have more or less control of Gaza, but it's not entirely clear that they're able to stop uh, all of the other uh, entrepreneurial militants from firing missiles. Um, so it could be that despite the ceasefire, there is a new outbreak of violence within days. You know, I think all anyone can do right now is cross their fingers. David Kirkpatrick is the Cairo Bureau Chief for the New York Times. Thank you very much, David. Good talking to you. Law student Noor Karma fled her home near the education ministry in Gaza City to stay with her grandparents in another part of Gaza. There are now more than 20 members of her family staying with them now. Now, you're still in Gaza City, Noor, which has been targeted pretty heavily by the Israeli military. So it's not about fleeing the danger. Why did your family decide to move in together? Well, um, we decided to move together because we wanted to feel safe, but unfortunately, Palestinians have no safe place to stay at. So you don't actually know maybe you're going to die the next hour, the next minute, um, the next day. It's really horrible, you know. So d describe for us kind of the, the new comfort or any sort of comfort you've gotten from being with uh, your extended family. Well, being with my family made me feel comfortable because um, I was afraid I'd die. And um, believe me, I don't want to die alone. I mean, I mean, my family, um, we're going to be together. And, and if anything happened to one of us, it would happen to all of us together. And uh, we all support each other, you mm -hmm. know, because uh, we, we feel sad. So by supporting each other and by, by staying next to each other and caring for each other, um, maybe we feel better, like um, psychologically we feel better, you know? Have you, have you actually thought a lot about dying in the last few days? You know, th this idea, this image of dying alone, has that crossed your mind? Yes, actually, um, unfortunately, I lost a friend in the war in Gaza in 2008, and um, I I'm really afraid of losing, of losing, uh, losing myself this time. But uh, what about my little, my little sister or brother? They're just like seven years old, ten years old. I have a baby brother who's 11 months old. When, believe me, when I look into his eyes, I feel really desperate because I have nothing to do and I can do nothing to make him feel safe. I mean, it's really horrible for all of us. So does that mean that every minute of the day you're constantly on edge just waiting for the next bomb to, to fall? Yes, yes, believe me, yes, we do. Uh, we didn't sleep for the past six days. And um, everything we do is watch TV when the electricity is on, and um, we just keep waiting for the next bomb. 
I mean, radios on just to hear where, where this bomb was launched or how many people were, were killed, how many people were injured. So That's all we do all day long. You're a law student, Noor, so I'm just wondering what, what kind of law are you studying? Uh, now I'm studying general law, mm. and I hope, I really hope, I can make a difference. Uh, like, maybe when when I become a, a really successful and famous lawyer, I would regain the basic human rights for the Palestinian people living here in Gaza. Did you decide to study law because you feel there are injustices in your world that need yes. some writing? Yes, I, I did, I did, yes. And, you know, I refused many scholarships from United Kingdom and United States, and because I wanted to study here in Gaza, and I wanted to become a really successful lawyer to to talk on behalf of my country and on behalf of my family and my friends and all the people I know and all the Palestinian citizens. I want to talk on behalf of them and regain back the right to live, the right to feel safe, the right to study, the right, to, the right of education. I hope, I hope someday I will make a change. So, Noor, what do you think uh, the chances are of any ceasefire holding at this point? For me, all, all I want is peace. We only dream to live a happy life like any other people anywhere in the world. I want to go back to my university. I want to continue my studies. My brothers want to go to uh, their schools. We want to go back to our normal life, away from fear, away from tears, away from death, away from, from all those horrible things. Palestinian law student Noor Karma speaking with us from Gaza City. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Let me turn now to reporter Daniel Estrin, who's in Jerusalem. Daniel, what is the general mood among Israelis today? Well, I was in Tel Aviv today. It was it was a sunny day and, you know, no rockets fell there today. No sirens warned of incoming rockets. But rockets have been falling there for about four days in a row. For Tel Aviv, which so many people here call the uh, the bubble, the place where you can live a sort of glamorous Mediterranean seaside life, the reality of what's going on here really has pierced that atmosphere and Everywhere I went, people were talking about rockets. They weren't talking about anything else. I hopped into a cab, and uh, turns out he's from the southern city of Ashdod, which has been heavily hit by rockets. He was going to grab some baby formula for his friend back in the south because uh, his friend was too uh, nervous to go out to a store. Um, I later stopped for lunch at a restaurant, and the delivery man was chatting with some restaurant workers, and one was saying, you know, seeing babies and kids killed in Gaza is heartbreaking, no matter who it is, no matter even if, if it's the enemy, and, you know, they were arguing about that, whether or not to feel empathy. Everywhere you go, people are talking about it. At one point today, two Israelis, one a soldier, were killed in a rocket attack near the Gaza border. A building was also damaged by a rocket attack in a suburb near Tel Aviv, and so things are changing constantly by the moment, and, and um, there are a lot of jitters around here. So uh, you mentioned that one Israeli soldier who was a reported killed today, the first Israeli soldier killed in the current days of conflict. How was that news received, and how does that kind of tweak the mood at this point? Well, there was lots of talk of a possible ceasefire happening tonight, and it's thrown a curveball into the whole situation. Now um, the radios are constantly nonstop reporting this, reporting the damage to the building, and Benjamin Netanyahu supposedly has given a directive to his ministers to uh, sort of stay quiet instead of giving these sort of heated interviews like they have been on the radio talking about how uh, a ceasefire is, is a bad idea. But uh, do you get a sense that Israelis want the ceasefire? Are people feeling optimistic about a potential ceasefire? I think everyone wants a ceasefire at some point. But what I've been hearing all day today on the radio, people in the street saying, 
it's probably better not to rush into an immediate ceasefire because who knows what will happen months from now, a year from now, all of this will, will happen again. And um, we should not go toward a ceasefire until we know that there will be no more rocket fire coming from Gaza. There's a real sense. I mean, I was, I was hearing a few 18-year-old uh, female soldiers on the radio talking about how we'd rather uh, our soldiers go in and really hit Gaza hard if we have to uh, before calling a ceasefire because um, calling one prematurely might mean that Hamas would not be deterred enough not to uh, launch rockets at Israel um, in a month or two. Daniel, uh, you visited uh, the Tel Aviv Art Museum today where the curators were storing paintings in the basement. I'd like us to listen to the scene there as the museum was busy trying to protect its valuable property. So I'm just looking around here and I'm seeing this looks like the scene of a, a crime scene, like, a, like just yesterday thieves came here and, and absconded with a hundred works. I may say that in a way evacuating an exhibition is a crime scene. It shouldn't have happened, but what can we do? I mean, we have responsibility to protect our paintings in time of problems. And Daniel, I just have to ask you, I mean, the gentleman there sounds pretty nonchalant if I read him right. Have Israelis just gotten so used to these periodic bursts of violence, it's almost now like an occasional bombing is just part of the fabric of life? That really is the sense around here. But I really did feel that this was different. The the gentleman you just heard from, the curator, said that he hadn't taken down works of art and stored them in their fortified vaults since the 1991 war with Iraq. And, and so there is real sense that this is something unusual. And, um, you know, it's been a long time since the sort of heartland cities of Tel Aviv and uh, Jerusalem have been spooked by possible attack. Reporter Daniel Estrin speaking with us from Jerusalem. Daniel, thanks very much. You're welcome. You can get the latest on the Gaza conflict and ceasefire from our partners at the BBC. We have links at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Women can serve as priests in the Church of England, but they can't be bishops. And a vote in London today reaffirmed that. The Church's governing body is known as the General Synod. Today it narrowly blocked a measure to ordain female bishops. But as The World's Alex Galifant reports, the vote is not likely to settle the debate. This was a marathon day of speeches. Short, long, heartfelt and exasperated. We're all sick of this, aren't we? But think of my poor pastor assistant. She is having root canal surgery as we meet in here today. She'll be writhing in agony on the dentist's chair longing for relief. Philip North is an Anglican priest and a member of the General Synod. Not nice, but I have to admit I would give all the money in the world to swap places with her. (laughs) Anyone watching the proceedings today in London witnessed, to quote Lincoln, a house divided. The measure being debated was a compromise. It would have allowed women to serve as bishops, but if local churches felt, for theological reasons, unable to accept that bishop's authority, they would have had the right to place themselves under the care of a male bishop instead. Now, don't think this is just a men versus women thing. It's not. Take this exchange on British radio this morning in advance of the vote. First, Susie Leaf, a lay member of the General Synod, 
and then the Reverend Rose Hudson Wilkin, a chaplain to the Queen who was born in Jamaica. It's unclear as to what it really means. It's reliant on a code of practice that hasn't been written yet. So I know the media thinks that today, if that's the kind of end of the story, but actually I'm afraid it is going to mean more and more and more discussions and we'd like to see us get back round the table and come up with a really clear measure where we can actually say we're going to go forward together. We're never going to have a clear measure. The reason why the measure is so unclear at the moment is because the church is bending over backwards. You know... People are behaving like children. They are threatening. We'll pick up our marbles and we'll go if you don't do what we say. We have struggled within the church for years and years and years, and we have not said we're going to go. So please, let's stop behaving in this childish manner. The Church of England is part of the global Anglican Communion, and as the home church of the Archbishop of Canterbury, who leads all the world's Anglicans, its decision was being watched around the world. That includes here in the United States, where women bishops already serve in the Episcopal Church. I spoke to Maylin Biggerdike, a priest associate at St. Elizabeth Church in Ridgewood, New Jersey. For her, it goes beyond any secular concern about equality. For people of faith, it's a much deeper, more profound question. Can we truly look at half the world or half the church and face God and say no? Women were not created in your image. What it is truly we are saying to God when we take a stand against women. Today's vote doesn't settle anything. It merely prolongs the agony for the Church of England. But elsewhere, different decisions are being made. Yesterday, the Anglican Church of Southern Africa elected, you guessed it, the first woman bishop on that continent. Her name is Elena Womukoya. She'll be the Bishop of Swaziland, And this was her message to her fellow Anglicans in London. I would like to say to the Church of England today that they should not look at the gender of people, but let them look at the qualities and the things that the the people of God are bringing. Because, you know, in God's eyes, we are all the same. And that the Church of England should not be afraid of their women folk, because they are just equally good as the men folk. Bishop-elect Womakoya joins 22 other female bishops in the Anglican Communion, three in Australia and New Zealand, five in Canada, one in Cuba, and 13 in the United States. But none, for now, in Britain. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant. Now to another country, another religion, and another controversy. A court in Pakistan today dropped a blasphemy case that had attracted global attention. The case involved a Christian girl named Rimsha. She'd been accused by a Muslim cleric of burning pages from an Islamic children's textbook. Rimsha is 14 years old and is thought to suffer from some degree of mental impairment. She was jailed for three weeks but released on bail in September. She and her family have been in hiding under government protection ever since. Correspondent Fahad Desmouk in Karachi explains today's ruling in the case. The judge said in his uh, 15-page judgment that there was just no evidence showing that uh, she had done what she'd been accused of. And more importantly, he he mentioned that there was just no evidence to prove that she had done it with the intention that the law requires. Yeah, he was pretty strong in his wording, uh, the judge. He also urged Muslims to be extraordinarily careful with blasphemy allegations, and he said putting Rimsha on trial would have abused the process of law. I mean, that sounds like a pretty brave statement made by the judge. How is the public reacting to his decision and to his use of words? You're right. It was a a relatively brave statement. It's not something that we've seen this kind of outcome to blasphemy cases that often. 
in which the judges come out so strongly. But at the same time, what the judge said and what the general sort of opinion in the media and the public is that these laws, the blasphemy laws, shouldn't be abused because this girl was underage because, or she was a minor because there was so little evidence, because there was also the cleric who accused her was later found to have planted that evidence, those burned pages inside the bag she was carrying. All of this was deemed to be an abuse of the laws, but there hasn't been any real discussion about the laws themselves, about whether they need to be reformed or not, about whether one has the right to blaspheme or not. That kind of discussion hasn't entered the public debate. And in the judgment as well, there is no discussion about the law itself, but just that the law has been abused. So it isn't clear whether this is going to lead to any long-term change in the laws or whether public opinion has changed enough during the time of this case. Now, I understand there's also a pending blasphemy case against the Muslim cleric who accused uh, Rimsha because he might have actually been responsible for burning the pages of the Islamic book himself. That's right. After Not long after the criminal charges against Rimsha began, there was another witness who came, and the witness said that he saw that cleric came and gave those burned pages to the police. And uh, according to the prosecution case, that cleric is still facing charges of committing blasphemy. So it's sort of the, the case has been turned on its head. Again, though, these cases tend to linger on for years and years, or at least months. And the case of Rimsha is likely to be an exception rather than the norm. The reason why Rimsha's case was so high profile and why it received so much attention was because it took place in Islamabad, the capital, where there are plenty of journalists, uh, foreign journalists, as well as local journalists. It's Mm -hmm. easy to get uh, camera crews out there to go attend the court hearings, to go and speak to her family. So that's why this case is unlike a lot of the other cases that we don't really hear about. What will happen to Rimsha and her family now? Do they stay under government protection? For right now, she's uh, with her family in an unknown location under government protection. In a lot of these cases, what people who have been acquitted attempt to do is try and leave the country because they feel that they're under threat living in Pakistan when there are so many vigilantes about, such as what we saw in the case of uh, the Punjab governor Salman Tasir and, and another minister, Christian minister, who was assassinated for their statements related to the blasphemy law. So I would expect that the family will try and leave the country if possible, but it's not clear exactly whether that will be the case. Fahad Desmouk in Karachi, very good to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks, Marco. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, Mexico's version of Twinkies. They're called Gansitos, and Mexicans first fell in love with them in the 1950s. They were an affordable treat. They only cost a very little bit, but it was a little touch of luxury, something out of the ordinary. People remember them and still eat them with great pleasure. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. More rockets, more airstrikes, more dead, and more wounded. 
That's the grim result of a seventh day of fighting between Israel and Palestinian militants in Gaza. The fighting continued today, even as ceasefire talks in Cairo were reportedly advancing. Meanwhile, the fighting is having a ripple effect in the other Palestinian territory, the West Bank. People there are supportive of their comrades in Gaza, and the Palestinian Authority, which rules the West Bank, has encouraged peaceful demonstrations against what it calls Israeli aggression. But the conflict may be playing into the hands of the Authority's rival faction, Hamas. The world's Matthew Bell reports from Ramallah. A flat-screen television in a Ramallah office shows images of Palestinian militants in training, then demolished burning buildings one after another, gruesome shots of dead bodies and a badly injured child. This is Al-Quds TV, the channel operated by Hamas in Gaza, and this office is the headquarters of the Change and Reform Party, the party of Hamas in the West Bank. Legislator Abdul-Jabbar Fukaha says... People in several West Bank cities have taken to the streets in recent days, and that's a vindication for the Palestinian resistance. That's a term used by Hamas and other militant groups to describe all forms of armed struggle against Israel, including attacks against unarmed civilians. The situation in Gaza over the past week, Fukaha says, has proved something to Palestinians everywhere. The resistance acts that are taking place in the Gaza Strip have a positive impact on the West Bank. People have no other mode other than defending themselves against the Israeli occupation. Resistance is the only answer. Demonstrators today in Ramallah chanted for the martyrs in Gaza. They called Israel a Nazi government and burned an Israeli flag. They welcomed the sound of rockets fired at Tel Aviv, and they declared the peace process dead. It could all spell trouble for the American-backed leadership in the West Bank. Adib Jarar, who came out for the demonstration, says the public is moving toward Hamas and the resistance and away from Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Abbas has fallen in a trap of the Israelis. He believed, he trusted, because he is a person who believes in nonviolence, and he believed that the civil disobedience is a way to liberate the West Bank and Gaza. He believed the Israelis failed him. This is maybe his wishful thinking. The Palestinian Authority is clearly trying to get out in front of this wave of popular anger. At the Ramallah demonstration today, the body of a young man killed in clashes with Israeli forces in a West Bank village was driven through the demonstration, and the procession included dozens of uniformed Palestinian security forces. It seemed to be sending a message from the West Bank leadership. We are with you, so don't be against us. Mahmoud Labadi is an official with Fatah, the dominant political faction in the West Bank and main rival of Hamas. All those Palestinians who are demonstrating, they are mostly Fatah. We are not concerned that the, of the internal split. We are more concerned now, we are all united against an Israeli external aggression, which is more threatening to us than the internal. But the internal Palestinian divide is on full display with recent events. Hamas is perceived as confronting Israel, and in the process, it has received attention from regional power brokers, Egypt, Turkey, and Qatar. Meanwhile, President Abbas still plans to go to the United Nations at the end of the month to seek recognition as a non-member state for Palestine. 
That's despite the fact that Abbas and the West Bank leadership appear to have less influence than ever over the Hamas-ruled Gaza Strip. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Ramallah in the West Bank. The conflicts in Gaza and in neighboring Syria aren't the only ones in the world right now. Today, the army of the Democratic Republic of Congo suffered a dramatic reverse. It lost control of the strategic city of Goma, which is now in the hands of rebels. Goma lies on Congo's eastern border in the heart of a mineral-rich area. The army's collapse there was sudden and unexpected. We spoke earlier with the BBC's Gabriel Gatehouse in Goma. Well, at the moment, the rebels are standing round in clumps positions around town, attracting uh, quite a lot of interest from those residents who've stayed. Some of them are sort of standing round them, gawping at them, looking uh, a little bit nervous. I have to say, I think quite a lot of residents are either hiding in their homes or have left. Uh, it's been quite an anxious-making day for them. It started off in the early morning um, with this gunfight just on the northern outskirts of town. We witnessed it. We were driving up to see who was in control of the airport uh, when we, we drove past some Congolese army positions and it started to rain. The visibility wasn't great. We drove about 100 yards further. We saw some more soldiers coming towards us down the road and suddenly our driver said, hold on, those are not Congolese army soldiers. Those are rebels. We started to turn the car around. At that instant, the two sides opened fire on each other. Uh, there was a brief firefight, small arms mostly. But my impression was that after that, the Congolese army simply melted away. Uh, a few hours later, we watched a small advance party of rebels, uh, most of them lightly armed, just with their Kalashnikovs, but some of them with slightly heavier weapons, march totally unimpeded down the broad highways of Go watched over by the UN peacekeepers in their white uh, armoured vehicles. They had their guns trained on them, but of course with their mandate to protect civilians, they couldn't start shooting in a built-up area. So these rebels just walked past the UN peacekeepers, walked down to the border with Rwanda, did a sort of victory lap and walked back out again. And how many rebels uh, kind of were able to make these Congolese army troops just melt away and just walk past the UN troops that are now holding the city? I think in terms of the ones that uh, I've seen here uh, and that other journalists have seen and residents have seen, we're not talking more than a few hundred. I think what happened, Marco, wow. uh, was that resistance from the Congolese army simply melted away. It's not a well-disciplined force. Many of these uh, Congolese army soldiers don't even get paid. And when they do, it's somewhere in the league of $50 a month uh, for an officer. Um, so many of these people just melted away. Uh, and the rebels came in. I think they knew that the UN wasn't going to open fire on them. Now, there are several rebel groups operating in eastern Congo, Gabriel. Uh, this one is known as M23. Who, who is M23? Well, M23 is basically a, a reincarnation of an earlier rebel group called uh, the CNDP, which was a Rwandan-backed rebel group that fought in one of Congo's many civil wars that we've seen here over the past two decades. This rebellion was born out of a mass mutiny earlier in the spring. Uh, many ex-CNDP officers who had, uh, after a peace treaty in 2009, been integrated into the army said now they weren't happy with the conditions uh, that they were being given in the army, the way, the way they were being treated, the amount of power they had, essentially, and they mutinied. They went up into the jungle, and for the past uh, seven or eight months, they've been working their way steadily southwards. Now they've taken Goma. On one level, this is a tussle between two factions of the Congolese army. Why? 
because eastern Congo is fabulously rich with minerals. It's also very, very far away from Kinshasa, the capital. So it's a place to which uh, the reach of government, the reach of the rule of law barely extends. So Mm. uh, the one power here is the gun. Uh, And if you're in the military, then you have an awful lot of power and also, therefore, an awful lot of money, potentially. Gabriel, I'm just curious to know, a, a few years ago when there was uh, fighting around Goma, it seemed the, the UN took things uh, into their own hands and were firing back. Why is the UN now not uh, really engaging? I mean, you, you said they're there to protect the population, but don't they have any mandate to kind of fire on people if they're going to invade a town like this? I mean, they were firing back uh, during the battles uh, outside of town to the north of Goma. They were dispatching helicopter gunships. They were firing on the rebels in support of the Congolese army. Mm. Um, But I think uh, what they've been telling me is that once they got into heavily populated areas, they simply couldn't risk uh, the collateral damage, as it's sometimes called. They simply couldn't risk civilians getting caught in the crossfire, civilians potentially being killed by peacekeeper bullets. I I think that for them was beyond the pale. That for them would have been uh, going beyond their mandate, breaking their mandate. So, Gabriel, uh, just step back for a moment. What does all this mean for Congo? I mean, a country that, as you've, you've pointed out for years now, has been locked down in essentially kind of a regional world war. Yes, these are people who are very, very used to conflict here. Um, It's been going on for years, for decades. Um, I think what we're seeing here is the start of perhaps another chapter, a chapter that possibly may suck in neighboring countries as well. The problem in Congo, essentially, is a lack of a strong central government. This is such a huge country. It's the size of Western Europe. Kinshasa is right on its western tip. We are right on its eastern edge. And while there is no strong central government here, I think these armed groups, these many, many different armed groups, will continue to hold sway and there will continue to be conflict here. Gabriel Gatehouse with the BBC in Goma. Democratic Republic of Congo. Always good to speak with you. Thanks. My pleasure. For our GeoQuiz today, we're focusing on a South American nation where there's no war or crisis, but today everyone is under a strict curfew. This Andean country is about to conduct a census, so officials want everyone home to get the most accurate count. The only people allowed out on the streets will be thousands of census volunteers. At last count, the country's population was just over 10 million. That includes members of more than three dozen indigenous groups who have new rights under a new constitution. The leader of this landlocked Andean nation is an Aymara, the country's first indigenous president, in fact, We'll hear more about the upcoming national census and reveal the answer in a few minutes. Never have so many grand things been said for a food product that, let's face it, we all admit it, it's fun when you're a kid, but pretty darn cloying when your tastes mature. But news of the Twinkies' demise was, it seems, premature. Hostess and its striking employees have agreed to keep negotiating for now. All the eulogies got us thinking, though, about other countries and their obsessions with sugary baked goods. Look no further than Mexico, home of the Twinkie-like Gansito, 
Rachel Loudon writes a blog on food and food politics. She lived in Mexico for 15 years before moving to Texas just a few months ago. Loudon says gancitos are everywhere in Mexico. There's not a little mom-and-pop store. There's not a grocery store that does not have a large display of gancitos, little geese, on on their shelves. So describe the gancito for us. What, What does it look like? What does it taste like? It comes in a little plastic package, uh, brown and blue, with a little goose on the outside. It's a cream-filled sponge. It has a little strawberry jam, or what purports to be strawberry jam, on the top. And then the whole lot is covered uh, with chocolate and chocolate sprinkles. Right. So you say purports to be strawberry jam on top. Does that mean you've uh, tasted these and said, "Mm, may look like it, but it's not strawberry jam? Well, it's very sweet. Let's put it that way. Okay. But for Mexican children, it is the treat par excellence. Right. So what is that all about? And what do you think the whole Twinkie thing is about? Because even tasting a Twinkie today, it's like, oh, yeah, that reminds me of my youth. But then it's just way too sweet. What do people see in this, even grownups who kind of look back lovingly on the Twinkie? I mean, I, I assume there are a few of those in Mexico and the Gancito. Oh, yes. It's very interesting. It parallels the subculture of the Twinkies and the nostalgia surrounding the Twinkies very closely. They came in the uh, 1950s. The Gansito did. Yes, using the American technology. Bimbo, who makes them, the big bread company, was always very quick to pick up on the latest baking technology. Every snack cake that's made by Hostess, you can find a parallel in Mexico. They associated them strongly with family. They were heavily advertised on early television in Mexico. And of course, for the families, they were sanitary in days when not everything was in Mexico. So they felt very safe giving them to the children. They were an affordable treat. They only cost a very little bit, but it was a little touch of luxury, something out of the ordinary. So people remember them and still eat them with great pleasure. It sounds very similar to the to the rise of the Twinkie, a kind of like, you know, post-war uh, piece of uh, food stuff that a lot of kids liked. And it grew with the family, as you say, a family-friendly taste. One downside that people have been saying over the years about Twinkies is, uh, you know, the connection to high rates of child obesity. And now people are looking at this and as maybe it's not such a bad thing. What would happen if the Gancito went away? Do you think people would be outraged? In Mexico? Oh, certainly. And I really wonder about the obesity business because we live in an environment where people have so many opportunities to eat high-calorie foods. You take out the Gancito or the Twinkie and I think something else will pop in in its place. So you lived in Mexico for the past 15 years. What is the one junk food from Mexico that you can't find in Austin or in the U.S. that you actually do miss? Oh, real chicharron. That's uh, pork cracklings. Pork cracklings, but the ones that still have meat on the inside and are freshly fried. Oh, my God. Mm. Long live pork cracklings. Historian and food blogger Rachel Loudon, we have a link to her site at theworld.org. We've also got an item there that might surprise you. It turns out Mexico's bakery giant, Grupo Bimbo, owns quite a few American brands. Check out our slideshow. Again, that's at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Okay, here's a weird one. A country with a curfew, but there's no national emergency or violence breaking out. 
That country would be Bolivia, the answer to our geo-quiz today. Bolivia's National Institute of Statistics just wants to carry out a census of the population, so it wants everyone to be at home. BBC Mundo's Vladimir Hernandez is in Buenos Aires. I mean, Vladimir, really? I mean, how long does everyone have to stay at home, just until they've got an official headcount? Well, basically, yes. This is a census that's going to last one to three days, but at least in the first 24 hours, the government is demanding that the population stays at home, and those who don't have an authorised to leave their house are even, you know, risking fines of almost $400, maybe even some hours in uncomfortable places such as jail or police stations. And this is the reason behind this is that the government just wants to make sure that everyone is at home for the census as they think it's crucial for the country to know where is everyone, how many people live in what population, and therefore that will allow them to have enough policy making to distribute resources in the next years. Isn't that kind of strict, though, to keep everybody basically under house arrest for for 24 hours? What, what, What are people saying about it? Well, it is quite strict. And I think the Bolivians right now are thinking the same thing. And it is because there are some territories within Bolivia which have have some sort of rows to determine the boundaries between some provinces, boundaries between some cities. And that means more or less resources. So some of local officials all around Bolivia have been going on with these disputes and they're fearing that the census will in in a way undermine their own claims to have a bigger province or a bigger city. And this is why the government just acted with force saying, well, no, hang on, we're going to leave those disputes for later. And all we need is people to stay at home and not for the local officials to interfere. And does the government think they can uh, pull off a census in three to four days? Well, they're hoping to do that. Some 200,000 people are going to be on the streets of every little small towns and cities of Bolivia. In some places, this is quite a big country, most of it in rural areas. It will take up to three days, although it's not clear whether people will have to remain three days in their cities. Another interesting fact about all this census is that they're making people go from the big cities to their hometowns. Many people are trying to do that because they fear that they leave their houses empty in their own hometowns. The state might intervene and say, well, if you don't need that house, we might take control of that. All of that is just policies that are being discussed as this census is about to take place. Sounds like a chaotic week to be in Bolivia. It does indeed. (laughs) Okay. BBC Mundo's Vladimir Hernandez. Always good to speak with you. Thanks. Cool. Thanks, Macro. After a long night out, what do you feel like eating? I'm still thinking chicharrones, but if you said French fries, then you'd probably love Nairobi, Kenya. That city is filled with cheap French fry joints that stay open till the wee hours. In fact, the late night snack is so popular that it inspired a slang term and a popular song, both about a very adult topic. Here's the world's Anders Kelto. It's 2 a.m. in downtown Nairobi, and Wendy Kamani is doing what a lot of young people here do around this time. Standing outside of a nightclub, holding a bag of french fries. You can actually see the grease soaking through. It tastes like heaven. <laughs> it's good and greasy. Oh, greasy as hell. <laughs> and you like it that way. <laughs> french fries to go, or chips funga as they're called here, are the late night snack of choice in Nairobi. But recently, that term, chips funga, has taken on a whole new meaning. It's basically taking a lady home who you don't know, you've met her for the first time, and... You take her home for a one-night stand. That's Antonio Sol. He's a rising star on the Kenyan music scene. His song, Chips Funga, has been riding high on the airwaves here for more than a year. And yes, this is him singing. I want to call you every second, every minute, every hour of that day. Every day. 
Anto says when he first heard the term chips funga, he immediately got it. He says young Kenyans are constantly inventing new slang terms in English, Swahili, and tribal languages. If you go to a particular town or a particular estate, the slang changes nearly every day. The phrase chips funga started popping up on Facebook and Twitter about two years ago, says Harriet Ocharo, a 25-year-old technology writer. So she decided to blog about it. She asked readers about the etiquette of a chips funga. The comments started pouring in. No sleeping over, no phone calls before 9 p.m. So you only call for the hookup in the evening. Um, no emotional discussions. All gifts are accepted. Money is always good. <laughs> no baby talk. <laughs> Calling out the wrong name during sex is okay. Don't be offended. <laughs> no falling asleep right after sex. It's over. You get up, get dressed, go home. <laughs> Harriet says at first, it was mostly men who used the term. But now, women use it too. They've even come up with a spin-off, sausage funga. You can probably figure out what that one means. Harriet says women's use of these slang terms is a sign of the times in Nairobi, where women no longer feel bound by traditional gender roles. Nairobi is a very free town. No one judges a woman if she fungas a guy or the other way around. I think it's a good sign. But Antonio Sol. The guy who sings Chips Funga says he sometimes worries that young people in Kenya are Chips Fungaing too much, and they're putting themselves in dangerous situations. Where we might contract HIV and AIDS, we might contract STDs and STIs, we might get pregnant, and we have to suffer the consequences of such a short period of time called a one-night stand, a.k.a. Chips Fungaing. Anto even worries that the term makes people want to Chips Funga because it sounds funny and lighthearted. So he wanted his song to send a message that it isn't necessarily good to be a chips funga. The third verse, which he sings in Swahili, does just that. And if I put it English, it would basically be put on some ketchup, put on some mayonnaise, put on some salad, you've just been served. So you've had a one-night stand, and that's what you are. You're basically chips, your french fries, your vegetables, and you've made yourself cheap, like chips. That's the message Anto wants people to hear. But it may be the opposite message that has them singing along. For The World, I'm Anders Kelto, Nairobi. We have more from Antonio Sol, including videos, and a song called Quirty Love. That's Q-W-E-R-T-Y, as in the first letters of a QWERTY keyboard. That's in our language podcast, The World in Words. Check it out at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. When I call you,
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.